Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. So today with us, we have Dr. Josh Kurtz, and he is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics here at the University of Louisville School of Medicine, and you are in the Division of Cardiology. Thank you so much. I listened to a number of the episodes, so it's exciting to get to to be on it. We wanted to talk to you today about tweeting and how you have used it already early in your career in, in terms of medical education. In light of that, I went back and tried to find out when did tweeting and medical education sort of show <laughs> up in the literature. Up? Well, I must have missed it because I found a paper from nearly 10 years ago in Medical Teacher that talked about using social media as a complementary or even alternative tool for medical education. And so my question is, 10 years ago, you were probably in high school. <laughs> maybe not in high school. So how did you get interested in Twitter and medical education? So I, I was an intern when that article came out, so I was okay. not that. All right, not high school. I'm sorry. I apologize. I, I feel like with a lot of things in, in uh, academic medicine, it was a little bit of serendipity. So when I joined the department a couple years ago, there was a big push to in, increase our uh, presence on Twitter. And in addition to the literature on medical education, there's actually a lot of uh, data on Twitter and medicine uh, related to outcomes and reputation. And so um, a lot of the reputation and research dollars are higher at institutions that have more physicians that are active on Twitter. And so there's a big push by uh, the university and, and Norton to increase our presence on Twitter. And I think the fact that I was a younger faculty member and a true millennial, they just assumed I they had a social one. media presence. Right. Yeah, you didn't come to me, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, well, the joke was on them. I had no social media <laughs> presence. Um, but uh, as I got into it, and they did give us a crash course, which was nice, um, and how to do it, I, I really found a great community um, with things for both medical education and just kind of medicine and learning in general. Uh, and I've really embraced it and, and grown to, to really enjoy it, um, both from my own learning and my ability to kind of spread some of our knowledge and some of the important things we're doing here at UofL to, to the broader community. What did that crash course look like? Yeah, so it was once monthly or every other monthly meetings on kind of best practices. And so they looked at, again, there's actually a lot of data on this. And I think why Twitter and some of the, the articles that I think are going to be in the show notes talk about this, that Twitter is kind of the perfect uh, social media for this because there are so many analytics that they do. And so they've looked at the the tweets and the type of tweets and the the way that uh, especially medical tweets are out there and which ones have the most likes and views and engagement uh, and basically kind of gave us a course on, so here's the number of characters you should use, here's how you should link pictures in, here's how to promote a journal article, here's how to tag uh, different things that will, will get more eyes on you and we'll talk about a little in a little bit, but uh, which hashtags to use and which uh, which people to tag so that when, when you tweet it out, it actually uh, takes the algorithm and moves to the top and, and gets the broadest views. Josh, could you just maybe walk through some of the key terminology that people need to understand about Twitter? I think I know a handle that's like my name, you know, like the at S. Saner, that's me. But what else do you need to know about? 
Yeah, so the good news is a lot of it kind of gets picked up along the way. So you don't necessarily need to know it all in advance to get started. Um, but as you said, yeah, the handle is your username um, or your at uh, address. Um, as I mentioned a second ago, hashtag, and I think that's kind of become the biggest, the biggest thing. And that essentially is a, a search term. Um, and that's really what is going to be used to to broaden uh, the view of, of what you put out there. But also on the other end, if you're looking for education, or if you're looking for a topic, that's the best way to find it. When you put out a tweet or someone puts out a tweet, if there's a keyword, um, keyword or phrase or acronym that's used, if you put the pound symbol or hashtag before it, uh, that makes that term searchable. And so uh, in my field, congenital heart disease is abbreviated CHD. So a lot of times I'll search for hashtag CHD um, and all people have started putting out information about congenital heart disease will usually tag it with that. And that will give me all that information that I need. So that, that hashtag I see all the time, that tweet attrition, <laughs> so that's a, for something specific? Yeah, so that's for pediatricians, and so the American Academy of Pediatrics, or at least I think it was the American Academy of Pediatrics, in part of their campaign to encourage more pediatricians to be active on Twitter um, and get out there, uh, created the the hashtag Tweetiatrician, which is just a portmanteau of tweet and pediatrician. Um, uh, and so a lot of pediatricians, especially around things related to the American Academy of Pediatrics or advocacy, um, since the AAP is big in advocacy, uh, will in, uh, include that hashtag so that people, again, looking for this type of content know that's how to look for it. Jerry, did you know you're a tweetatrician? <laughs> no. I, I don't think I qualify because I've tweeted once in my career. And so I, I think you probably have to do more than that to count. <laughs> I don't know. I still think that counts. I remember my, my, my first tweet actually was related to an AAP survey and was was hashtag Tweetyatrician, so God, that's how it. I got started as a, as a fellow. October of 2021, the Journal of Graduate Medical Education put out this tweetatorials for medical educators. And so I guess the first question, what in the world is a tweetatorial? Those of us are really more the real trendy people on Twitter are not that creative. It's just another portmanteau of tweet and uh, tutorial this time. <laughs> Looking at basically short teaching sessions or tutorials that can be given in um, a few tweets like Twitter allows. And I think one of the biggest advantages, advantages of this is that you can take advantage of all that Twitter has to offer. So the ability to link to articles. So as you're going through and, and discussing your topic, you can link directly to the source material, um, adding pictures to it. So a lot of times you'll see the, especially the first tweet in, in a tweetatorial will have a picture or a diagram to it. And so giving that uh, dual coding that a lot of education research has shown has been a benefit. And I think that's one of the biggest benefits of Twitter right there is that ability to use the dual coding with the, the picture and the, the type in the tweet. Twitter does limit you to 280 characters, and so this the tweetatorials are kind of your way around that. So the original, um, I think, intent of Twitter was these real short, single kind of phrase tweets, but they've now allowed you to link tweets together. And so you can take those 280 characters and make them much longer uh, if you need to. But again, they're broken down into only 280 character bursts. And so lots of short, digestible information that you can obtain at one time, usually a link to either a picture or a diagram at once that you can take that information in short amounts and digest it a lot easier than you can a whole lecture or something that's given to you all at once. And I think this article is fun because I think I follow all four of the authors, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. I might need to follow them as well. Do you feel like the content that, like in a tweetorial or something that gets sent out, you know, I'm thinking from a research background that there is a static pool of, of journal articles that are in publications that you can go back to. And even though 
the content there doesn't change, you know you can always go back and there's always a way to go and find that same content. Do you feel like the information that's on Twitter is like ephemeral? Like if you see it when it comes across, you get it, but you're probably not going to go back to Twitter of 2015 or 2018. Yeah. So uh, there are some abilities in Twitter to save old tweets and to pin tweets and to keep things that are very important. A lot of times, uh, at least the way I'll use it, and I know some of my colleagues will use it, is they'll find it from these articles, but then download the article and save Mm. it and put it into their file. So even if they forget the original tweet, they've now connected to that material. I know I personally have a lot of people put out diagrams and drawings through the um, picture capabilities, and I'll screenshot it and keep it on my phone, and I I go back to them a lot. Um, So even if it's not you know, a, t- a tweet from many years ago, if it's saved into an easy part of your phone, you're still coming across it frequently. So a lot of that information is is easier to access, even if it was put out there, you know, a number of years ago. People also uh, will add on to old tweets. It's not done as often, um, but say someone uh, published a paper in 2015 and then put out some new data about it now, they may actually, and they're going to tweet about the new article, they may actually go back and link to when they tweeted out about the first article to, to connect the two. So you may see old information that kind of gets brought back every now and then. Our students and residents, fellows, are, are they interacting with this content that's getting put out there? Yeah, I, I think it's it's really been fun because I'm kind of on both ends of that. As a junior faculty member, I definitely interact with a lot of this content and, and look up to people like the, the authors of a number of these articles um, and read their content. And then on the other side, I've uh, gotten responses from both residents, fellows, med students from from here at U of L as well as other institutions, and that's kind of been the real fun part. As I've met uh, fellows and attendings from uh, anywhere from as close to Riley, just down the street, to one at uh, UCSD, who I've never met at a conference, which you know kind of used to be the old way. You would collaborate, you'd meet people at conferences, and you know if you happen to run into them, you might you might form a friendship. Uh, this has been something that you know you're able to do uh, constantly and regularly, and so um, I'll interact with um, residents fellows and other attendings from from across the country every now and then discussing cases uh, and information that either uh, myself or they put out there. Josh, have you created one of these tweetorials? Yeah, so I've done a few of them. Most of the ones I do are around cases. And so if we have an interesting case in the cath lab, I'll put out some about those cases. I think the most quote unquote traditional tweetorial I did was on the difference or the fact that I don't like the term uh, pulmonary overcirculation and really going into all of the nuances of what physiologically is going on versus that blanket statement. And it was really fun to do. It was a lot harder than I thought. <laughs> I think it took me about as much time as it did to to write a uh, one hour talk as it did to do this, you know, I think it was 18 tweet uh, thread. So figure, oh you know, that's only about... 3,000 characters, so right. the, the length of an abstract. It was really fun to do, and I got a great response. Again, I had uh, responses from uh, neonatologists at our institution to residents and fellows at other institutions talking about it and uh, retweeting it, um, which is basically them reposting it for, for a broader audience to see. It seemed to have a lot of good feedback and was was well-received. So as you've explained this, let me make sure I get this right. Writing a tweetorial takes time, deliberate planning <laughs> to be able to set up the learning objectives. Where do I want to end up? It's not some random 
walk through some case, but you have to plan it out. You said there are 18 segments of this thing that you had to work through. That's a lot of effort. And so one of the, one of the issues that I know that we've talked with Dr. Paul about at, at Faculty Affairs is how, the, the, how does that count toward academic scholarly activity? And is it like giving grand rounds or doing other formal presentations? So I, I just want to make sure the audience understands this is, a, I just picked up my phone and went at it and created this tutorial. It took you deliberate effort to really make that happen. You, you mentioned that one of your tutorials was about a specific case. So what would faculty need to know um, when they're tweeting about protecting any, any patient identity? Yeah, that's definitely been a big debate uh, in the medical community. And, and sometimes it is hard to protect it because you know, they know what institution you're at. Right. Um, I think the best advice I've been given is to not do it immediately so that you get some time between it where if someone doesn't go, well, I know, you know, that's a rare disease. I know someone at Norton who just had that done. Yeah. I bet it's that person. So giving some time in between helps protect it. And then otherwise just using as little identifying information as possible. Just, you know, the, the basic information that it's a, that's important. Uh, in my case, the lesion and size of the, the patient or age. Other fields probably could use even, even less identifying information, just the symptoms. One advantage I have, a lot of times the, the cases that I tweet out are interventional cases. And so again, any angio I show or any echo I show is de-identified. You can't see any of their information. You can't see the date that it was done. Um, but as part of our consent um, in uh, CATH procedures is dissemination of medical information for teaching purposes. And I specifically highlight that whenever I talk to the families. And so we do actually have some consent to do this at the time. Obviously, other people who do post patient photos and things like that do need yeah. full consent from yeah. the family. And there is a, a setup at UofL and, and Norton to have that done. You said two years ago when you first got here, you were sort of tagged as a millennial who must be able to do this, but you had to get trained yeah. to do this. So you've had a couple of years experience doing this. What, what lessons have you taken from this, uh, this process? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I can say I'm still learning more every day. Um, I think the biggest things are to just take advantage of um, what Twitter has to offer. I think the kind of crash course they gave us was important, um, but really the biggest takeaways from those were, you know, finding the community that you want to speak to. So, you know, if you're looking at education, things like um, hashtag MedEd or hashtag um, FOMED, F-O-A-M-E-D, which is Free Open Access Medical Education. You know, so looking under those hashtags, both when you're looking for content, but also when you're putting it out, make sure you hashtag those so that you, uh, people who are searching for that content find it. Um, finding other people in your field and tagging them uh, in the post so that when you write the post, in addition to hashtags, you can search by people. So instead of just putting a phrase in there, like med ed, um, actually putting stay at um, faculty HSE or at Stacy Sonner, um, that way, uh, not only do uh, that will show up on, on their timeline as well, but people who follow them will have it. They'll be alerted to it as well, and then they can help disseminate it. And so anyone who's, who knows, oh, well, you know, faculty HS, uh, HSC does, um, put, puts out medical education content, I want to look for whatever they're putting out or whatever they're retweeting or whatever shows up that they're liking. So how often do you do this? We're supposed to, for the, the Norton U of L part put out, I think it's four a week. 
Uh, honestly, that's not a lot of time at all. <laughs> um, Who decides that? Like, is the the metrics told them they read the they read the crystal ball and that was like. I get, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I th- well, it was a minimum. So I think, you know, the more the okay. better. But I think, yeah, I think the minimum was like, yeah, four a week is enough to get you within the algorithm of, oh, look, they're putting on a lot. We should okay. should uh, emphasize their content. If I'm not doing a dedicated thing where I'm trying to put out really educational content, you know, three or four times a week for a few minutes go on and just post, you know, an interesting echo or an inter- interesting angio uh, or just an interesting uh, case or, or tidbit really quickly about cardiology to, uh, that you know, fellows and, and residents may find interesting or uh, even at some times, again, some of the interesting cases other, other attendings might chime in on. I'll tell you, I bring a certain amount of fear to this uh, because of its publicness, because of its abuse by some who in leadership have tweeted their way into trouble. I, I always worry that I would hashtag the wrong people or do something that would be like, how did he ever, <laughs> why did they let him say that? Uh, take his phone away or something. And so it, I've been afraid of it. And, and I have a 23-year-old son, and he's encouraged me that you know this is not that scary, that you could do this. And I think I've missed opportunities to do education with it or to communicate interesting things or facts. And I can tell you, I've started at least five times and stopped within one tweet five times because I don't know. I just, I don't know what it is about it. So I want you to speak to the baby boomers and the generation, the Gen Xers, and tell us. I'm going to pile on here because I'm also a millennial, (laughs) but I'm a, a, like, I don't know, maybe it's my cynical, senennial, maybe that's what I am. And I, like, I, it just, to me, it's like Twitter, like the people on Twitter, and it's just so toxic. Yeah. And it, like, convince me that, and I, I, I feel that too, like, never tweet, Right. Yeah. So, like, I don't think it's just the baby boomers that are okay. like that. I'm, I'm like, Mm-mm, no, like, no okay. way. So, convince us, <laughs> convince this whole table, other than no, Stacey Sater, who and is the big for- and the bigger audience that's listening. Why is this important to to do to not be afraid of? Yeah. Um, well, I guess I'm technically a geriatric millennial as well, so I, I, I do get a little of that crossover. And I, like I said, do not use other forms of social media, I, but. I think this is one that has, it can be used in ways that will get you in trouble too, or um, things you can be cynical about. But, you know, kind of one of the big rules I follow is if you wouldn't say it at a conference, you shouldn't say it on Twitter. And that's usually a pretty safe thing to (laughs) to be behind. People have definitely gotten themselves in trouble. And I think uh, med Twitter, um, so one of the other hashtags you'll see a lot is hashtag med Twitter. It's definitely had its fair share of people who uh, have risen to, if not, you know, Twitter fame, true fame, and gotten themselves in trouble because of it or rose to fame by being controversial. But I think that's, you know, most of the time using it for something else. Um, I, you know, I do know a, a number of, of physicians who tweet only medical things, rarely the non-medical stuff, and have 50, 60, 100,000 followers um, because they're, you know, putting out a lot of good, sound medical information. Um, they aren't trying to uh, racy opinions or things that, you know, usually in the social media world definitely will get you a lot of likes and a lot of follows, but, you know, you can still go out there and, and use it for education without, you know, using the other aspect and can usually get away with it safely. Recently, in, in the journal Academic Medicine, there was, there was a, a publication in their section called The Last Page, 
that talked about this this use of Twitter in medical education, and they they even sort of get very granular in terms of talking about the different components of a tweet and giving you a lot of definitions. So it appeared to be a good place for a beginner in tweeting about medical education uh, to go in and get information about that. I just wanted uh, to make sure that the audience knew we're going to put the link at this, to this in the show notes and then uh, wanted you to comment on it. One thing I'll say is the first thing that I thought of when uh, when I saw this was another thing the ECC did um, with another podcast, and sorry to promote another podcast on this one, but um, is talking about, they did a debate with this podcast group who is for cardiology education with some of the quote-unquote big names in education in, in cardiology. And they actually did a debate uh, discussing trendy versus traditional learning. And uh, trendy learning was things like podcasts and Twitter and other forms of asynchronous learning versus the traditional way, which was sitting down in a lecture hall and having someone with a very well-known name who's published 100 articles get up and talk to you about them. And while they didn't uh, address this directly, they they hinted at this a lot and talked about the nature of uh, kind of this modified blooms and the, the idea that asynchronous learning uh, in this new in this new environment uh, really gives you the same uh, objectives and uh, ability that you did in the traditional learning, which is what Blooms is based on. So uh, seeing this kind of made me think of the same thing. On our podcast, we generally ask our guests to challenge our learners to do something in the next week or so, because, you know, podcasts, like a lot of things, is a very passive form of learning. And so if we wanted to make our podcast active in nature, this is our attempt to do so. So if you were talking to some uh, group of faculty, what challenge would you give them? Well, I think this is easy for this one. I'm sorry. It's, you know, usually it's probably something harder. It's a bit of a softball because to just go out there and try it. Um, this is one of those really easy things to do. Um, if people even want to just start uh, going out and consuming even before um, putting out content themselves to go on and just find who are the the big names in their field. You know, a lot of times they'll already know those people, so just go search for them. Go search for the journals in your field. Um, search for any hashtag that you think may come up, and you'll usually find other ones from it. Um, and then just go out and try to put out a tweet yourself. And it can be anything from an interesting case you had to you know, basically taking a lecture you've already given and put it into to tweet form or just putting the, the bullet points and highlights into it and then uh, tagging, again, people in your field or people in, in your community, people at UofL, and, and start getting it out there, which will allow uh, that tweet to, to grow and have more people see it. Dr. Josh Kurtz, we really appreciate you being on faculty feed today, and we look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be, as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional information from today's session, as well as our email address. Feel free to contact us at facfeed at louisville.edu that's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more and come hungry.